welcome to the Upstream Public Health Podcast, Thinking Upstream, where we talk about the prevention issues of the day. Today's episode is brought to you by Tofco, the Tobacco-Free Coalition of Oregon. Now, your host, Jill Hudson, and today's guest, Ann Boone. Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome back to the third edition of our podcast on tobacco taxation. Today is a great day because we have Anne Boone. Anne is the Director of Research at the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids. And if you haven't heard of the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, um, I very much encourage you to go to their fabulous website and check out who they are. Uh, The Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids has been on the leading edge of preventing tobacco use in this country. They have crafted and have ushered in an era of youth who are much, much less likely to use tobacco than generations before. So it's an absolute honor to have Anne here today. Hi, Anne. Hi, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. We're we're really excited because Upstream Public Health has been working to increase tobacco taxes. We're a nonprofit. We're based in Oregon. And uh, we want to increase tobacco taxes to improve public health. Oregon has not increased, as I'm sure you know, because you're tracking this at a national level. We have not increased uh, appreciably our tobacco taxes for several decades and our tobacco taxes are below national average. So we wanted to have some conversations about how tobacco taxes work, why they work, and how people should think about them, or we think people should think about them, when they're making decisions about whether or not to support tobacco taxes as a voter, as an individual, as a person in a community, or as a policymaker, or what have you. So in that... Uh, space, the Upstream Public Health Board came together and came up with five things that we think everyone should know about tobacco taxes. And today we're going to talk about thing number five, which is uh, tobacco companies will oppose tobacco taxes. They'll spend tremendous amounts of money to buy influence, distort the truth, and confuse the public and policymakers around tobacco taxes. But before we jump into that, I am hoping you can give us a little bit of a primer, uh, not specific to Oregon, but for the whole country. How, How did tobacco taxes get raised? I mean, what are the main mechanisms and methods for increasing tobacco taxes? That's a great question, Joe. Um, tobacco taxes are raised at the federal, state, and local level. Um, each locality can do it depending on their state policy. Um, but they are raised generally, um, most often at the legislative level. That is, um, there will be a proposal to raise the tobacco tax, and then it goes through the legislative system. In a few states, um, they have ballot initiatives where, you know, it goes to the voters in the state and they can choose to, um, to pass a tobacco tax increase. And then at the federal level, of course, it goes through Congress where it's, um, it's proposed and, um, and passed uh, through Congress. So there are definitely, definitely different mechanisms. In a few cases, also, state legislators will um, 
pass the, the tax increase onto uh, voters. And so it might start off in the legislature, but then I'll move to a ballot initiative. And then in other cases, um, it will start as a ballot initiative. Yeah, I mean, I feel like it, as I've talked to people, uh, even those processes as a, can be really um, challenging to understand why it has to be this way or why it has to be that way. And then there's sometimes these kind of crazy nuances. In Oregon, it is not legal to raise tobacco taxes at the local level. We are preempted. Uh, so local jurisdictions can't increase tobacco tax taxes, except that probably because of definitions of tobacco, local jurisdictions in Oregon could increase taxes on electronic cigarettes because they're not currently defined in the same way. So it can be kind of tricky. Um, for the most it, part, are they state taxes? Yes. So every single state has a tax on cigarettes. Most states have taxes on other tobacco products such as smokeless tobacco, cigars, things like that. And there just a very few um, cases where states do not tax a certain tobacco product. For instance, Florida does not tax cigars at all. Okay. I want to talk about uh, what to expect when you are entering into a community dialogue at a statewide level around increasing your tobacco taxes. And a little disclosure here, I've worked on a few tobacco tax issues. Um, I uh, have worked to help people at the local level increase their tobacco taxes. And then many, many years ago, I worked in Oregon to increase tobacco taxes here uh, in, a, in a ballot initiative process. And so I was thinking about this this week and kind of thinking about this conversation and I'm going to take a little sidebar here. I uh, was thinking about it in this context, and I think I might have stolen this from from the New York Times and a podcast that they're doing, but um, I uh, am a mom, and I have two kids. Uh, one of them I uh, gave birth to, and when I was pregnant, there was this book called What to Expect When You're Expecting. Do you know, have you, do you know anyone who's ever read that book? Uh, I'm familiar with that book. Yeah, um, and I a friend too. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It was really popular. It's been. Um, I'm gonna. I'm gonna get real here. It's been a quarter of a century since I had a child, but uh, the book is really popular. It was kind of like this this uh, book that really walked you through uh, all of the weird and uh, unpredictable and uh, super strange things that happen when you're pregnant, like, oh, this is so bizarre. Now I'm going to have more saliva. Why would I have more saliva? So it was so helpful to have this thing that said, oh, this happens to everyone. because, And it's very predictable because this is all biological. It's all something that many people have been through before. And while it doesn't make it any more pleasant, it, it's predictable. And I I started to think about what to expect when you're taxing, what to expect when you're taxing cigarettes and thinking that that might be pretty predictable because people have been doing this like you, like me for a really long time. And I think tobacco companies have some fairly standard tactics in place to push back on tobacco taxes. So 
that's what I want to talk to you today about, what to expect when you're taxing cigarettes, uh, and specifically what to, tobac- what to expect from tobacco companies. So uh, let me just jump in. What comes to your mind, or what is the what are some of the main resources or tactics that tobacco companies use to prevent quality tobacco taxes from being put into place? You know, that's actually a great way to frame the issue. Um, I, I mean, we know, just talking about predictability, we know, for instance, that tobacco tax increases are one of the most effective ways to reduce tobacco use especially among kids, and there are hundreds of studies to prove it. The Surgeon General um, has says this in its, um, in its many reports. And the thing is, even the tobacco companies know it. You know, we have documents that were previous com- previously confidential that have been released to the public, and in those internal documents, there are quotes where the industry says that they know that tobacco tax increases will reduce use. And so it's completely predictable that they are going to try to oppose these tobacco tax increases. They engage the public in a very predictable way, um, and and they've been doing this for decades. And so we know what arguments that they're going to bring out. We know what strategies they're going to use. And it's just a matter of coming up with responses that will resonate with um, the public and policymakers to to help them understand and, and see through these um, these claims that the industry makes. And so, so um, oh, excuse me. No, no. So, so what's in their playbook? Tell me, tell us what are what are their favorite plays? What are they What do they go to here? So, there are three main ways that we've seen the industry um, oppose tobacco tax increases, and, and generally, tobacco control policies in general. Um, one of those ways is that they have a ton of money, and so they spend a lot of their money to oppose ballot initiatives or other um, tobacco control policies that would reduce their bottom line. And this includes um, not just campaign spending, but this also includes hiring lobbyists to push their um, to push their agenda. So there's that. There's also um, spreading misleading information um, using data against uh, certain policies and creating front groups to make it look like the opposition to certain policies is much larger than it is. So the third way that they try to oppose uh, tobacco control policies is by recruiting allies and creating front groups to make it look like the opposition to a certain policy is much larger than it is. Yeah, that all sounds really familiar and really daunting. Um, Let's start with the money. Can can you give us some some examples or some sense of the magnitude here of how much tobacco companies will spend or how much they'll outspend public health advocates in their attempts to mislead the public and uh, battle against tobacco taxes? Sure. Um, most of the data that we have about industry spending comes from their spending to oppose uh, certain ballots. And so, I'm sorry, ballots where there are tobacco tax increases. Um, and so, we have collected data from some of the more recent ballot initiatives. I think 2016 was a banner year for tobacco 
industry spending to oppose tobacco tax increases at the ballot. For instance, in total, uh, we were looking at three major tobacco tax increases in three states, and the tobacco industry spent $92 million in that one year to oppose three ballots. So in California, we saw a record amount of money spent to oppose the $2 tobacco tax increase there. The industry spent um, $70.1 million, whereas wow. the, the side pushing or, sorry, the side pushing for the tobacco tax increase, that, which included most of the health groups such as American Cancer Society and um, a lot of local groups in California, they spent $30.4 million. So you can see the huge disparity in the amount spent. Yeah, absolutely. Now, in Oregon, um, it sounds like you had um, you have familiarity with the last um, tax increase at the ballot in Oregon in 2007. And um, just to put that in perspective, again, the industry came out in force to oppose an 84.5 cent increase in Oregon. Um, they spent a total of $11.7 million, which at that time was the most expensive ballot measure in Oregon at that, um, that year. Um, whereas the proponents, the people who were pushing Measure 50, um, again, included the major health groups, um, they were only able to spend uh, $4.1 million. So again, the industry likes to flex its muscles when it comes to spending money to oppose these um, ballot initiatives. Yeah, it's, and um, it's really, uh, it's possible uh, to to win in these contests, even though it's a very David and Goliath scenario. Um, I didn't work very much on the ballot initiative in 2007 because I was uh, working for the uh, state of Oregon at that time and um, was only able to do work in my spare time. I worked on a ballot initiative here in 1996 to increase tobacco taxes. And at that time, we were incredibly outspent and it was a very um, it was a very eye-opening experience for me as a young advocate to to feel what it was like to come in every day and uh, have uh, that amount of power in just purchasing uh, the air the the air that we breathe. I felt like practically was purchased by tobacco companies at that time, uh, which yeah. made it very gratifying to to win that particular uh, ballot initiative. And, uh, and of course, it's been gratifying since then to see how much progress we've made in tobacco control in this state um, as a result of some of the programs we put in place. Um, but very disappointing uh, to lose in 2007. And so uh, we want to thank you for kind of that, that prep. Uh, and, you know, I was watching this this year, too, uh, in the this election cycle in... 2018, um, looking at at states that were trying to increase their tobacco taxes and um, how industry would come into places like Montana and just like literally drop twenty dollars a voter in order to to win an election there. So resources yeah. is a huge thing; they're winnable, but you have to be prepared to be up against this giant who has um, really. Uh, almost an unlimited amount of money to uh, spread misinformation and to persuade people that tobacco taxes are somehow um, going to hurt the public. I, I completely agree. And I think that while 
they do have unlimited resources, I think our side does have a lot going for it as well. We have the facts and we have um, the emotion. You know, people don't like to see their parents, family members, um, friends hurting from tobacco use. And tobacco increases are very helpful in helping people quit and preventing kids from starting. When we can emphasize that messaging, um, I think that, that that is helpful. And I think the example that you gave um, in the earlier about initiative in Oregon is a great one. Um, and that has sort of reflected in, um, in California in 2016, where, again, the industry massively outspent the advocates, the health initiative side, but yet we were able to, um, to pull out a win. And so I'm hoping that this is sort of turning things around a little bit and people are learning that the industry is not to be trusted. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm with you, Anne. I think that when people stop and think about this issue, they, uh, they, the things that they care about uh, can come to the surface. So... Um, uh-huh. You know, one thing that I, I, I work, I've worked on tobacco control and tobacco prevention for so many years. One thing that I really try to do is talk to smokers so that I don't get, uh, or other tobacco users, so that I don't get far away from the real human uh, family impact of tobacco use. And uh-huh. to this day, um, after many, many years of doing this and many conversations, I've never once talked to an addicted tobacco user who is a parent who says, I really hope my kids use tobacco. I really hope my kids follow my path and use tobacco. And when we know tobacco taxes are so effective at uh, preventing youth from starting tobacco, um, it's it, it's just what you said, having the facts on our side and having the health of the public in sight and fighting for that really does put you in a good position. So I'm with you. We really hope this is turning around. So tell me about some of the main ways that you have observed um, or some of the lines of thought that tobacco companies use to mislead the public about tobacco taxes. Um, there are sort of a handful of arguments that the industry will bring out whenever there is um, any debate about a tobacco tax increase. Um, surprisingly, once in a while, we'll still see the industry pull out the, it doesn't actually work to reduce tobacco use. Um, and so <laughs> That's a good one. Out, yeah, I'm, I'm always surprised when I do see that. It's, it's pretty rare these days. Um, yeah, it feels like but, that, that jury is in over and over and over again. Um, so... But what you're saying is they'll just sort of uh, show up and say, hey, the sun is not going to set tonight. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I admit it is very, it's more rare that we hear that, but it has popped up once in a while. Okay. Um, but the other three, I'll just go over, or I'll just mention um, three of the main arguments that we've heard more recently. Um, one is that uh, tobacco tax increases hurt lower income people. Um, and we've heard that over and over again, again, despite data showing that lower-income smokers are more sensitive to price than higher-income smokers, and that means that they will be more responsive to an increase in the price. So they are more likely to quit in response to a, a larger 
tax increase or a price increase um, than those who have higher income. And that also means that they will benefit more because once you quit, you reduce your health risk and you also reduce the health care costs associated with those higher risks. And we have some evidence from the 2009 federal tax increase, again, showing that lower-income smokers did quit in higher numbers than um, than smokers uh, with higher incomes. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think there's uh, always a lot of really worthwhile discussion about what kind of an impact any given tobacco tax will have on lower-income individuals and lower-income families. And it's not something that we want to take on without really thinking through both sides of that issue. So do you have any information about um, the how lower-income individuals feel about tobacco taxes going into them? We know that there's a high level of support for tobacco taxes, uh, in the general population, when you poll on tobacco taxes, they poll very high. There's a lot of support for them. It's a fairly bipartisan issue. Um, I agree with you. The polling does show that tobacco tax increases are supported over a large, you know, sort of the wide population. So the second argument that we often hear the tobacco industry um, pulling out is that States and localities will lose businesses and um, employment will decline and stores will close down, sort of a doomsday kind of argument. Mm -hmm. Everybody Um, will go to the next state that might have a slightly lower tobacco tax and and, uh, buy their cigarettes there, things like that. Exactly, yeah. And so, um, again, the data do not support this argument. Um, Studies show that Employment and the number of convenience stores do not decline in response to declines in in cigarette use. Um, And it's also important to remember that the money that people used to spend on tobacco products, if they quit or cut back, they're not going to just put it in their mattress. They're going to spend it on other goods and services in the state. So they buy cigarettes anymore, but they'll still buy food. They'll buy, you know, um, clothing, um, gas, things like that. And so... Um, this money is not lost to the state and it's certainly not lost to stores and retailers in the state. And again, if you encourage people to quit through tobacco tax increases, you're creating a healthier workforce. And so employment should increase, uh, just productive, I'm sorry, productivity should increase as people are healthier and able to, better able to work. Um, and then I do want to make another point. Convenience stores, as an industry, has been pushing to encourage more healthier options in their stores. As part of my, as part of my work, I do some tracking of um, convenience store industry um, trade publications and things like that. And very often, they're putting out um, n- news articles about how to increase your business through offering your patrons healthier healthier options. And they even commissioned a study um, that said that stores shouldn't continue to uh, solely cater to what they call is their declining core business, uh, sorry, core audience. And those are the people described as people purchasing cigarettes, beer, and hot dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that report said that that is not a, a growth strategy. Wow. So in other words, they need to not look to cigarettes and to other tobacco products as their core business anymore because people are looking 
customers are looking for healthier options when they visit these stores. Well, it's great to hear that customers are looking for healthier options. And uh, I think your point about uh, those tobacco tax uh, dollars um, or the money that people would be spending on tobacco taxes, tobacco, if they don't spend it on tobacco anymore, can go to other things. And of course, we'd love that if it went to other more healthier things so that their families can be um, healthier and, and uh, happier. So, um, all right, other, other main points of misinformation that we can expect when we're expecting to raise tobacco taxes? Well, you brought this up when I was speaking about the last point. Um, the industry also uses this argument that people are going to cross the borders, the state borders in droves to get lower priced tobacco products. And again, we don't necessarily see this happening to the degree that the industry claims. Um, a report released by the National Research Council and the Institute of Medicine in 2015 um, stated that industry-sponsored estimates of the size of the illicit market tend to be inflated. So mm -hmm. this is a report put out looking at the national um, national rates of illicit tobacco purchases in the U.S., and it found that when it anal analyzed um, reports put out by groups affiliated with the tobacco industry, that these numbers were much higher than reality. And so we know that the industry is going to make it sound like everyone is going to cross the borders and then these stores are going to lose business. But then if you look at sort of just the very simple data of um, a state where their tax has increased and then compare it to the revenue generated in their neighboring states, you don't see this huge spike in revenues from um, people going from one state to another. So um, you'll see the states that increase the tax will benefit the most. In other words, they'll generate a large amount of new revenue. And then their neighboring states most often either stay about the same or slightly lower. Or if they do increase, it's very small and it's negligible. Okay. And so it's not to the extent that the industry claims, even if it might happen. Well, that's good to know. And good to know that there's a lot of uh, sophisticated analysis that's been done and rigorous analysis that's been done to counter that particular argument. Um, all right, any anything else on the uh, top hits? No, those are the main arguments that we hear. Um, but again, they're filtering, the tobacco industry is filtering a lot of this messaging through the allies that they've recruited and then the front groups that they've created. Okay, so tell me how that works. So we know in some cases we we've been able to actually follow the money. So we've been able to see how the industry has given money to certain groups and organizations, which then happen to come out with a report or some sort of um, analysis claiming that tobacco tax increases don't work or they'll lead to increased smuggling or any other sort of negative consequence. Um, and so we can actually trace where the money has gone. Um, in other cases, it's a little bit more um, subtle. Um, we've had to dig a little bit deeper. For instance, again, in, um, in Oregon in 2007, there was this situation where 
a letter was sent out by a first grade teacher to voters, and it was revealed later. I'm sorry. So the letter was in opposition to Measure 50 to increase the tobacco tax. And it was discovered later that the, that the letter was actually created and sent out by lobbyists for the tobacco industry. And so yeah. here they are not only pleading voters um, with this phony letter, but they're also, the tobacco industry has hired a company to put out these letters to do so. Yeah. That really reminded me, uh, thinking back uh, to, again, ancient history, just to uh, remind everyone how uh, tried and true these uh, tactics are. Uh, working on uh, ballot measure 44 in 1996, uh, I was working for the American Cancer Society at the time. We were one of the chief petitioners for the ballot initiative, and we were working with the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids, which I think had a slightly different name way back then. But one morning yeah, you came that in... Was, yeah, go ahead. I was just... I'm sorry. I was just saying that was in the early years. Yeah, early years of your organization. For Tobacco-Free Kids? Yeah, I think it was called the Center. <laughs> the Center for Tobacco-Free Kids. So uh, we came in one morning in the midst of this campaign, and one of uh, Oregon's former governors, a really, a really well-liked and kind of beloved individual in our state, uh, was airing was on the air uh, opposing the tobacco tax, um, saying that it just didn't make sense for Oregon. That it was a really bad idea. And here was this guy that was, it was just very sort of crushing. And then within a very short period of time, uh, we found out, uh, at really it was the uh, American Cancer Society with the Center for Tobacco-Free Kids found out that he had been paid by tobacco industry to, uh, to put that ad out. And uh, it in that case, worked in our favor because we were able to disclose that. But the whole incident, it just makes me really sad. It makes me sad that he took the money. It tarnished yeah. his reputation. I mean, the whole thing was really, really yucky. But it's also a really, it's a cautionary tale when somebody gets on the TV and says, oh, tobacco taxes are bad. You got to follow the money and think through pretty carefully why that person has taken that stand. Yeah, I agree. That, that is a, a sad story. Um, I'm sorry to hear it. I think... Well, it turned out it okay. <laughs> it turned out okay, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it doesn't come out until after. And right, yeah. everyone is like, oh my gosh, we got duped. Um, we thought a first grade teacher really had the best interests of kids at heart. And it turns out she was just a chump for the tobacco companies and we all believed her. So, you know, sometimes it doesn't turn out as well. And, um, you know, what we want to do is make sure that people are sort of inoculated to that tactic that the tobacco industry does all the time. They, they may even make people feel like this is the right thing. Do you know what I mean? Maybe people are not um, necessarily doing it just for the money. Um, they've been tricked by tobacco companies into feeling... Um, or believing some of the things that the tobacco companies have uh, said that don't uh, that aren't supported in the research, but um, you know they haven't done their homework, and then they sign up to be a voice for tobacco companies. So maybe there's a benefit of a doubt to be given there in some way, but I think the the point is uh, follow the money, listen carefully, 
um, understand the facts before jumping in and believing anyone, really, especially in an election. Yeah, and I think um, it's important also to remember that the tobacco industry is always looking at their bottom line. Despite what they say about um, some of the new products that might be out there, they are looking to increase their profits. Um, And the increase of their profits is at the expense of people's health. And so if you remember that, it makes it a little bit easier to, to remember that any messaging that comes from them is not genuine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so here's an argument that I think comes up quite a bit, and um, I'm going to run this past you to see if this is one that resonates across the country, maybe just more in the West, or if I have just missed the boat altogether. So I feel like whenever we go to raise tobacco taxes, tobacco companies come in and say, if you raise taxes, the government is just going to take this money and they're going to waste it, waste it, waste it. And so we shouldn't raise taxes because even though the government says they're going to spend this money on things that can improve health, that can improve communities, they're not going to do it. So they can't be trusted. So don't increase the tax. Is is that something that you hear as a argument? Uh- that's uh, a message that we do hear um, fairly often in states. Um, we always encourage states to direct the money to additional tobacco prevention and cessation. Um, it is difficult for people to quit a very addictive product, and putting some of the resources and the revenues from tobacco tax increases to these programs to help people quit really does increase and multiply the impact of a tobacco tax increase. Okay. So we're always pushing for states to direct money in that way. Um, unfortunately, states sometimes have other ideas where they want the money to go, and so uh, we can't always control that. Yeah, yeah. But it's a good note. And I think also that tobacco taxes uh, are more likely or have better support when at least some of the money is going to support tobacco cessation and tobacco prevention programs. And it also yeah, seems fair. That's, yes, that's very true. Um, in the polling that we've done, we've seen that um, people really do support tobacco tax increases much more if they... Um, if they see that the money is going towards, um, more, uh, excuse me, going towards tobacco prevention programs and other programs that help youth and adults quit smoking. All right, excellent. Um, so, uh, Anne, here's a question for you. You are a person who uh, spends a lot of time looking at tobacco industry. Um, messaging, a lot of time looking at tobacco industry tactics. So now I just, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you to dish a little bit. Like what's, what's something that was the most jaw-dropping thing that you were just like, what? That happened? Is it, has there, do you ever have those moments anymore? Or are you just inoculated to the whole scene? Or what was the most shocking thing? I have been working at the campaign for tobacco-free kids for 12 years. And... 
I really thought that after a while it would be kind of the same old, same old. And I have to admit, year after year, I'm surprised. Uh, to scratch <laughs> industry, they might pull out similar arguments that they used in the past. But because they have so much money, they're pretty innovative. And so between um, newer versions of arguments that they've made, newer claims, newer products that they've introduced, um, I do continue to be surprised. Uh, one of the more recent um, extremely surprising things, I think, um, on my end is uh, the Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids does work at the global level as well. And um, an offshoot of the of Otria, which is the U.S.-based um, cigarette company or tobacco company, um, they're called Philip Morris International. They are basically Altria, but in other countries outside of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Um, they market Marlboro outside of the U.S. Um, and several other popular brands. And recently, they have come out with a product that they call a heated tobacco product, and they're trying to introduce it in the United States right now. But we Wait, have what they now call we have it? a secret. It's called um, Icos. Oh, it's okay. called it's tobacco product as opposed to cigarettes that are burned. Mm-hmm. So they're trying okay. to distinguish the product in that way. Um, and so they've introduced it in other countries, but in the U.S. it has to go through a regu- regulatory process now. And so it's waiting through that process. And in the meantime, that company has come out and said that they want to end smoking in the world. Mm-hmm. And it is particularly slimy of this company to say it because while they're introducing this product that they claim is less harmful, um, evidence and data are still coming in. Um, so they claim that it's less harmful, but they're selling it in certain countries, but they continue to heavily market cigarettes in yeah. other countries, yeah. particularly low-income countries such as Indonesia, where there are very few regulations and they can kind of do whatever they want. And uh, I don't know if you recall, but several years ago, there was um, a video that had gotten a lot of media attention uh, about this Indonesian smoking boy. He was a two-year-old who was addicted to smoking already. Yeah. yeah. That type of, that, those are the types of countries where Phil Morris continues to push their cigarettes, even while they're saying out of the other side of their mouth that they're trying to reduce smoking. And so... I, I should not have been shocked, but I was pretty shocked when they came out with this type of statement. Yeah, I think you should have been shocked because it's appalling. It, it's truly appalling that an industry who uh, sells a product, uh, aggressively, actively sells a product, bites legislation that would rein that product in, um, and the product kills you when used exactly as directed, it's appalling. Yeah. And that it they is. would on one side of their out of one side of their mouth say, we want to end tobacco use and then, you know, do everything in their power to get cigarettes and other tobacco products and now e-cigarettes into the hands of children to addict them for life is appalling. So I'm I thank you for sharing that story. And I didn't mean to rebuke you. I mean, uh, I think it, it's good to every once in a while take a step back and say, this is shocking. Um, how How is this still happening? Um, so, and I think, sorry, what makes the story particularly appalling is that they're targeting 
vulnerable population. Um, and even in the United States, you know, this argument that I had mentioned earlier about um, the tobacco industry claiming that tobacco taxes, tobacco tax increases hurt low-income populations, they're not telling you that for years, and even, it's, it's a little bit less documented now, but for years they targeted that population. Um, you know, they spend, excuse me, they spend billions of dollars per year on price promotions to reduce the cost of their products so that people can afford it. Yet, they're trying to claim that a tobacco tax increase will harm these same people. Yeah, all of a sudden they care. Uh, yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So we've had a really interesting conversation about tobacco allies and tobacco uh, industry front groups. And um, is there is there anything else that's cropping up that you want to make sure we're on the lookout for? There, uh, the community for industry, as I'd mentioned before, um, has been helpful in um, touting the tobacco industry's messaging about loss of business. And the industry has particularly partnered with these uh, with this industry because they see them as kind of their grassroots um, branch. So they're the ones who can go to local and state hearings and plead with the legislators about how they're going to lose businesses. And this is um, how the industry is able to kind of put a local face on this type of argument. Um, but at the same time, we do have to remember that the industry makes money wherever products are being sold. And so their concern for convenience stores is only so that they can continue making their, their own profits. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also frightening convenience stores into aligning themselves with the tobacco companies uh, seems particularly reprehensible because a lot of these are small businesses. Um, some are not, yeah. but they're small businesses and um, feeling threatened. I'm a small business owner. I I will take action if I feel like uh, something is going to hurt my business. I, I would try to uh, convince legislators not to not to hurt my business. So. Um, I think when tobacco companies come in and, you know, spin a web and make small business owners feel incredibly threatened by anything that uh, would affect their bottom line, it's understandable that small business owners would do that. Um, it kind of brings me back to your point of, hey, you know, they're going to buy something else. <laughs> and uh, they're buy something else probably in your store. So, uh, you know... Bona, get get ready for that. Get ready to sell something healthy and cool. So we do have sympathy for the smaller businesses uh, that sell tobacco products, but I think, as you were pointing out, they sell other products as well, and so um, we have to remind them that they won't they won't go out of business solely because of a decline in, in tobacco sales. Well, Anne, I want to thank you so much for being here today. Uh, it's absolutely riveting. I could talk about this stuff all day. It's really interesting to hear what's happening around the country and to get some really good information about what tobacco companies will do in order to prevent tobacco taxes from being raised. And I, I want to uh, ask you if you'll, you know, come back and talk to us some more uh, if the time comes that we want to talk about some of these things in a little bit more detail. I'd love to. Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Have a great day, Anne. Thank you. You too. 
This has been the Upstream Public Health Podcast. Thinking Upstream. Today's episode has been brought to you by TOFCO, the Tobacco Free Coalition of Oregon. Please visit us at upstreampublichealth.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash upstreampublichealth.com.